Welcome to Orthodox.Faith. This is Ron Bentley. And this is John Harmon. Ron, we just finished a couple of episodes on the Gospels' accounts of the temptation of Jesus. Yes, and we get versions of that story in three of the four Gospels, Mark in chapter one and Luke and Matthew in chapter four in both of those Gospels. We looked briefly at all three, but we concentrated on Matthew. Satan or the devil tests Jesus, and we considered how that could be a rerun of the scene between the serpent and Eve and Adam in Genesis 3. But that was only one possible parallel. We looked at others, Moses on Mount Sinai and the people of Israel in the wilderness after their escape from Egypt. The scripture Jesus quotes when he answers Satan, those quotes out of Deuteronomy point directly to those episodes. We've said it many times before, but we'll say it again. It's hard to go anywhere in the New Testament, including the Gospels, without bumping directly into its Old Testament background. (laughs) Without that background, it's impossible to understand what's happening in the New Testament. We're going to see that yet again in this episode. We're staying with the story of Jesus' ministries and the Gospel here, but we're going to shift to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, and the story of Jesus walking on the water. I'm going to admit I was surprised when you told me that that story evoked Old Testament connections, John. Jesus walking on the water, you don't get any more New Testament than that, (laughs) but you're telling me it's chock full of Old Testament illusion. (laughs) Yes. Let's take a look and see where this goes. In the last episode, we talked briefly about how significant gospel parallels are when we're talking about the gospels. That means we look carefully at how each gospel tells a specific story, and in some cases, whether it chooses to tell the story or not. The Gospel of John, as we know, tends to stand alone and tell things very differently. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tend to share a lot of similar texts, so we call them the synoptics because of that. And when we looked at the temptation of Jesus, we found that specific story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But only Matthew and Luke actually gave us the dialogue between Satan and Jesus. We talked a little bit about the significance of elements that we find only in Matthew and Luke and, shall we say, the academic flights of fancy (laughs) that sometimes surround that. Well, when we take that look at this particular passage you've picked, John, Jesus walking on the water, once again, we have a little bit of an odd beast. Curiously, this shows up in Matthew, Mark, and John. You'd expect me to say Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but no, Luke sat it out on this story. Matthew and Mark tell it, and for some reason, John picked it up too. That's more than a little strange. Strange or not, they all three agree on something. They all put the story immediately after Jesus feeds the 5,000. Ah, yeah, and that was an important story for John. It's the precursor to one of the I am statements, I am the bread of life. Hmm. We may have more to say about that in a few minutes, I think. But I want to treat Mark's version of this story in this episode. It's Mark 6, verses 45 to 56. An interesting feature of Mark is that it comments on an important connection between Jesus walking on the water and the feeding of the 5,000 from the preceding scene. Yeah, it's typically unusual for Mark to say something that other Gospels don't repeat, so that actually turns out to be significant here. Well, while we're stepping through the distinct variations of each Gospel, we might as well note that only Matthew tells us about the dramatic episode where Peter says to Jesus, "'Lord, if it is you,' tell me to come to you out on the water. 
we all know what happens next in that in Matthew's version. All right, so Matthew, Mark, and John each give us a version of this story of Jesus walking on the water. That's a bit unusual already. We're going to concentrate on Mark's version of the story. Let's go take a closer look. As Mark opens this story, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with nothing but five loaves of bread and two fish. That was an astounding feat by itself. All this has happened at the side of the so-called Sea of Galilee. More about that in a few minutes. The episode opens when Jesus tells his disciples to go ahead of him to Bethsaida on the north side of the lake. Beginning in Mark 6, verse 45, it goes like this. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. There's a lot of drama here. Yeah. This is an exciting scene and an important one. There's a lot here to observe and a lot that can easily get missed. Notice that the action takes place in the middle of the lake and shortly before dawn in the translation that you read, Ron. Okay. More literally, it's during the fourth watch of the night. Now, that's roughly between the times of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Now, the Sea of Galilee is about seven and a half miles across at its widest point and 13 miles long from, from its northernmost to its southernmost tip. That's a lake bye-bye reckoning, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, if so, it's also a fairly deep lake, Okay. about 140 feet or so in the middle. Okay. So when Mark says the disciples were in the middle of the lake during the fourth watch of the night, he's telling us that they were in the deepest part of the lake during the deepest part of the night. That's going to be a little scary to those who hear this story. I can see that. Yes, yes. And Jesus wasn't with them at this point. He stayed behind on land to pray alone. And he had gone up onto a hillside that overlooked the lake. So he could see the middle of the lake from there. And this makes perfect sense if you've been to the Sea of Galilee. You look down on the lake from the surrounding hills. The lake sits low between the highlands on the eastern shore and the hills on the western side. Okay. And because of that, it's susceptible to strong winds and storms, including changes in the weather that can come on very suddenly. You know, John, two chapters before this, in chapter four, Mark told a story about Jesus and his disciples in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee in the evening. And there, just as you suggested, a windstorm came up and waves were breaking into the boat. I think the New International Version calls it a furious squall. Uh, and apparently it was enough to make even fishermen who spent their lives on that lake fear for their lives. They thought they'd sink and die. And they asked Jesus, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Mm. In that story, Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. And he said, peace, be still and everything suddenly got calm. Good point. There are both similarities and differences between that story and this one. In this story from Mark 6, the conditions are a little different. It's not life or death. There's not a violent storm. 
The disciples don't appear to be panicking because they think they're about to go under, but they are trying to row into a strong wind. Some translations say they were straining at the oars. Mm. It was late. It was dark. They were pulling hard to get to where Jesus sent them, but they weren't making headway. You know, John, I've mentioned before that I've built a small boat. Ah. I regularly sailed on a lake in the Dallas area that's just a little bit smaller than Galilee. And with enough wind, and sailors like wind, by the way, (laughs) three or four foot waves are not uncommon. Uh, My boat is a small 15 foot wooden open boat. That is, it doesn't have a deck, probably like what the disciples had. If you get it wrong, if you get broadside to those waves, then you're almost immediately taking on water. The thing is, if you're trying to head close to the wind, the wind is constantly catching your bow and trying to push you away. Hmm. And even with a small electric engine, I've had trouble getting the boat onto my tiny trailer when the wind was blowing straight off the land. I'd get close, rev it up and head straight at the trailer and the wind would blow me to one side or the other before I got there. It's all the more challenging when you got several people at the boat ramp at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, sounds like it. All that is just to say going into the wind on a boat is hard work. Of course, they were rowing. With modern sailboats, you can make some headway into the wind, but you can't go straight into it. And when you're headed into the wind, no matter how you're making that happen, you're beating into the oncoming waves. The waves are slamming into you in rapid succession. It's slow, uncomfortable, and it's got to be excruciating if you're at the oars. Mm. In any case, Jesus saw their predicament, and Mark tells us that Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. (laughs) Yeah, walking on the lake. Okay, now that sounds kind of weird. He didn't just appear with them in the boat, but he walked across the open water to them. Yeah, That's at least a couple of miles. (laughs) Okay. But perhaps that's not the only unusual thing here. The rest of the verse says he was about to pass them by. I've got to say that gives me pause. Jesus went out to them, but he's just going to walk by them, wave and say, Good luck with that, guys. (laughs) Well, here's where we have to pause a moment and think carefully about the words that are used. Okay. When he says that Jesus was about to pass by them, the word that Mark uses for to pass by is very significant here. Mm -hmm. It's the Greek word parerkomai. And it's true that in ordinary use, when we're talking about a human being, that word means simply physically to pass by something, to walk by it. It's exactly what we would think. Okay. But this word is loaded with Old Testament significance because there, when this word is used of God in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it means that God was making himself known as God. When God passes by, it is to show himself as God. Okay. In a sense, the word is used of God when there is divine self-revelation. We see it in Exodus when God passes by Moses, in Kings when God shows himself to Elijah. It's in Amos. It's also in Job. Uh, for example, in Amos 8.2, in a judgment oracle against Israel, God literally says, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will no longer pass by them. Well, we might think, huh? Yeah, what's going on? That sounds counterintuitive on the surface, doesn't it? God's judgment on Israel isn't that he will pass by them, but that he will no longer pass by them. Right. Passing by was a good thing because, again, when it's used of God, it means that God shows up and reveals himself as God. 
a consequence of Israel's unfaithfulness to God in their covenant relationship is that God will withhold that self-revealing presence for a time. So the idea here in Mark is, of course, that Jesus is God, and we should think of passing by in the same way we see it in the Old Testament. Okay, this begins to make sense. One main purpose of Mark's gospel is to reveal who Jesus is, and that's true for the other gospels as well, for what it's worth. Mark opens his book with the words, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's no surprise he would use vocabulary connected with God's self-revelation in the Old Testament. Here, though, he applies it to Jesus as he reveals himself to the disciples, presumably as God. I'm starting to suspect that when Jesus walks on the water, there's a lot going on beyond the miracle itself. Who hovers over the waters in Genesis 1, for instance? Mm. The Spirit of God with all the creative power and energy of God hovered over the waters. No one else can do that but God. Rod, I'm starting to get Trinitarian vibes here. Yes. (laughs) I I have a hunch we're going there before long. But first, let me add another piece from the wisdom poetry of the Old Testament. And Ron, we'd be remiss if we didn't have something from Job uh, in our episode, would we? Absolutely. (laughs) In Job 9... Job is describing God, in particular, God's power in creation. And this is, not coincidentally, also where we get the passage in Job about passing by. Job 9.8 says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. A couple of verses later, Job adds, When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, here's the verb used in Mark, Mm -hmm. I cannot perceive him. The point I want to make here from Job is first that only God can walk on the waves. And second, Job laments that when this majestic God of creation reveals himself, Job is not at that time able to perceive God's presence. And here is Jesus walking on the waves of the sea and revealing himself to the disciples as God. The question is, would they see him? So Jesus wanted to demonstrate his divine majesty to his disciples. It was supposed to reassure them. He didn't go out there just to put on a show. He went out there to meet the disciples in their need, both physical and spiritual. Complete aside here, John, one of the first things they tell you in New Testament courses on the Gospels is that Mark has the lowest Christology. Supposedly, Mark makes the least exalted claims about Jesus. There are lots of these little hints, though, throughout Mark that suggest the contrary. I just didn't realize how much this specific episode is a part of that until you made these Old Testament connections. I've said it before, and I'll say it here again. Mark may have a terse narrative style, but he is a master of subtlety and understatement. Every time I go through Mark, I leave even more convinced that Mark intended to say no less about Jesus than what John says very plainly. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But I'm perhaps getting sidetracked once again. In any case, according to Mark, Jesus demonstrates this divine majesty, not just with his actions, but with his words too. Jesus only says a few words in Mark's version here, but they pack a punch. The disciples were terrified at what appeared to them in the dark, approaching out of what must have seemed like nowhere. In fact, the conditions on the water themselves didn't seem to frighten them. Jesus' appearance is what they were afraid of. So Jesus spoke to them. He said, Take courage, it is I, fear not. That's not a surprising thing to hear Jesus say. 
He says, do not be afraid many times in the Gospels, and even once in Acts and another time in Revelation. Of course, we also hear God saying the same thing in the Old Testament, most notably in places like Genesis, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Isaiah, among others. While we expect Jesus to comfort the disciples, the real shocker here is completely lost in translation. In our English translation, Jesus says, it is I. What he really says in Greek might be rendered. I am. I am. Ego emi. This takes a little bit of explaining. Bear with me for a second. In many languages, the verb tells you everything you need to know about the subject. A quick example. Rene Descartes made that famous statement, I think, therefore I am. That's five words in English with the pronouns. In Latin, it's just three. Cogito ergo sum. In theory, he could have said... Ego, I, cogito, ergo, ego, sum, with the Latin word for I, ego. But it's completely unnecessary and would have sounded strange. Greek is exactly the same. It even shares the same word with Latin for I, ego. If I want to say it is I in Greek, I just need the one word, emi. If I add the personal pronoun and say ego, emi, I either don't know Greek very well or I'm saying something emphatic like I myself am or... Or he's making a connection to the self-revelation of God in the Old Testament where Yahweh tells Moses his name is I am. Bingo. Right in the middle of Mark, the gospel that's supposed to have the lowest Christology. Incidentally, we get this all over the Gospel of John. It's quite deliberate. Time after time, Jesus says, ego and me, followed by some self-identification. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life, just to name a few. And then the kicker, the one that truly infuriates Jesus' opponents in an argument about Abraham. He drops the words that follow and just says, before Abraham was, I am, ego and me. And here again, smack in the middle of Mark, Jesus is in command of the waters, physically standing over the deep before the light of the dawn has come. And he says, don't be afraid. I am a go of me. If you don't know your Old Testament, you can miss it. But this is profoundly significant. I am is the name of Yahweh the God of Israel, set in the first person. Okay. As I said, that name is revealed to Moses in the book of Exodus. It's the famous burning bush scene when God speaks to Moses and commands him to return to Egypt. The exchange between God and Moses is in Exodus chapter 3. God identified himself to Moses from the burning bush as the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But God did not give a name. In ancient cultures, gods had names, and Moses knew that if he went to Egypt on behalf of this god, both the Egyptians and the Israelites would ask him, which god sent you? What is this god's name? Now, the Egyptians would want to assess whether this god had power in Egypt and whether this god was a threat to any of their own gods. Should they listen to this god? So Moses asks at the burning bush, whom shall I say is calling? Which God are you who sends me to Egypt with the promise that you will rescue the Hebrew people from slavery and suffering and deliver them to a good land? And God answers, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Back in the context of the story in Mark, the reason or basis for the command not to fear is that Jesus is God and he is with them. Okay. He saw them straining at the oars and he went to them. 
He didn't do that because he was trying to scare them. He did it to show them once again who he was, to let them see his divine majesty so that they could be strengthened and encouraged both in the moment and for the journey ahead. He is the great I am who is present in divine power, not only when the boat is sinking and life itself is at stake, but also in the frustrating, stressful grind of just trying to get somewhere. And it's dark and it's deep and the headwinds won't let up. After Jesus makes this divine appearance and delivers these self-identifying divine words, does he leave the disciples to ponder it all on their own? (laughs) Does he eventually pass them by in the ordinary sense after all? No, he gets in the boat with them and they go the rest of the way together. Mark tells us that the disciples were completely amazed. Some translations say something like they were utterly astounded. Then Mark says yet another curious thing that again requires us to see this in context. He says they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. The loaves? That clearly refers to the feeding of the 5,000 with the loaves and the fish in the scene immediately preceding this one in Mark 6. There's something about what happened with the feeding of the people. If the disciples had understood, they would not have been amazed at what happened on the water. But what was it? The text seems to assume that the reader will get what it was. We've discussed this before, John, and I doubt it means the disciples didn't fully appreciate the miracle of the feeding itself as the miracle that it was. The disciples certainly knew Jesus' power to do miracles. Given the context, it seems more likely that the disciples missed something else. They missed that in Jesus, they were face-to-face with God become human, but they were supposed to get that somehow from the miracle of feeding the 5,000? Yes, to a point they were. Jesus had shown himself to be the creator of bread. Only one could bring forth bread, and that one was God. Back a few verses, Mark tells us that Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Remember the Jewish context here. A meal would not be taken in this setting without giving thanks with a blessing that said, Praise be to you, O Lord our God, king of the universe, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. Mm. I agree. This is what Mark means when he says the disciples did not understand about the loaves. The disciples did not recognize that the blessing pronounced at the meal that fed thousands of people applied to Jesus. Jesus himself is the Lord our God, king of the universe, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. John, reading in context seems to be a theme in our episodes of late. (laughs) It was crucial to our reading of Genesis 1 through 3. It was crucial here. Jesus intends to pass by the disciples. He tells them, I am, ego and me. 
He fed the 5,000. There is so much we miss without the context. We'd go even further if we had time. (laughs) And incidentally, one more time, that context you're talking about includes the entirety of the Old Testament. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, yes. Specifically in this story in Mark, though, it's hard not to see Jesus care for his disciples and to relate to it. Okay. The disciples were not in mortal danger. There wasn't a mortal peril that left them in desperate need of immediate rescue, but they were struggling. He saw their distress. He came to them in the deepest part of the lake, in the darkest part of the night, as you said earlier, Ron, and he didn't rebuke them. Instead, he reassured them. He got in the boat with them and he delivered them safely to shore. He didn't transport them from having to row the rest of the way, but he enabled them to continue the voyage and to continue the voyage with him. By the way, it might be worth a quick mention, Ron, that Mark tells us that Jesus and the disciples landed at Gennesaret, not at Bethsaida, where Jesus had originally told the disciples to go. I guess there's no guarantee that disciples who travel with Jesus will always end up where they think they're going, even when it's God who tells them to set out in that direction. Well, I can't help but think that Jesus may have concluded, guys, it's too hard to row that way. Let's go over there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is where we have to wrap it up until the next episode. We do want to talk briefly about where we're headed next. Our regular cadence is that we release one episode every two weeks. Right. And we have been very consistent with that over the last few years. Yeah. For various reasons having to do with things going on in our lives, we need to take a short break. This episode will release on April 14th, 2023. The next two releases are April 28th and May 12th. We will release an episode on those days, but we intend to re-release two of our favorite episodes. John, I think we each get to pick one. Yes, yes. You'll pick a favorite of yours, and I'll pick a favorite of mine. This might, and I just say might, give our audience a window into what we think about some of our own episodes. (laughs) Fair enough. But we'll announce the releases by email as those episodes are released. If you're not part of our email list, head over to the website orthodox.faith and sign up. It's there on the front page, and we use that email list just to announce episodes, nothing else. Well, we expect to be back on May 26th, God willing, and we'll have a new episode or maybe even the start of a new series at that point. We'll see. That's it for now, though. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see that website, orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening.